Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. This week, the eyes of Europe will be on Hungary, where Prime Minister Viktor Orban hopes to secure a third successive term in power in Sunday's parliamentary election. What would a win for this black sheep of European politics mean for the future direction of Hungary? And what kind of challenges would it pose for the European Union? I'll be putting those and other questions to our man in Budapest, Dan McLaughlin. We'll also take a look back at last Friday's violent scenes at the Gaza-Israeli border, in which more than a dozen Palestinian protesters were shot dead by Israeli forces. Can further bloodshed be avoided in the continuing protests planned for the weeks ahead? Mark Weiss will join us from Jerusalem later. But first to that election in Hungary, and Dan McLaughlin joins me now from Budapest. Dan, is a victory for Viktor Orban this weekend inevitable? Well, it has seemed that way for a long time. He's the absolutely the dominant figure in Hungarian politics. His Fidesz party has, at the last two elections in 2010 and 2014, secured what they call a supermajority, a two-thirds majority, which has allowed uh, Fidesz to push through basically whatever laws it has wanted to, and even to change the constitution along the way. And undoubtedly, on Sunday, Fidesz will be the strongest single party uh, to come out of the Hungarian elections. But there have been interesting developments in the past couple of weeks, or even the past couple of months, really, especially after a by-election back in February, a a by-election that Fidesz was expected to win comfortably. It was a Fidesz stronghold traditionally, but an independent candidate, which all the opposition parties, uh, all the opposition parties got behind, won, beat the Fidesz candidate and won comfortably. This gave the opposition uh, renewed hope. And it also made uh, party leaders think that if they combined, if they, they combined their efforts, consolidated their efforts, if they got behind single opposition candidates in constituencies around the country, then they could do major damage to Fidesz. Now, talks have been going on mostly behind the scenes between the opposition party leaders to try and come to some kind of agreed position on fielding these single opposition candidates across the country. So far, we haven't, they haven't got there yet. They've agreed, certain parties have agreed in certain constituencies to pull out to favor a single opposition candidate to try and beat the Fidesz candidate. But there are still talks taking place. And there is a possibility that by the deadline on April the 7th, the day before the election, there could be an announcement from opposition parties that they will that there will be major coordination and cooperation across the country in fielding anti-Fides candidates. And that could put a very different picture on the elections come Sunday night, Monday morning when we have results. It seems very late in the day, doesn't it, for the opposition to be getting its act together in that in that way? It's very late in the day. It's an opposition scene that is, that is extremely fractured and extremely fractious. Uh, the parties stretch across the political spectrum from on the far right, you have the Jobbik party, which is vying to come second in the election. Now, their roots are absolutely in, in the ultranationalist and far right area. But since Fidesz under Orban in the last few years has increasingly pushed to the right and become increasingly radical, Jobbik has tried to rebrand itself and come more towards the center to try and take a sort of Uh, conservative right-wing position, the kind of area that Fidesz used to hold. Lots of people aren't convinced that they've really changed at all, but that is how they're positioning themselves at the moment. If you look across the spectrum, then you have, they're competing for second place really with the Socialist Party. Um, And then you have another centre-left democratic coalition, and then you have the politics can be different, as it's called Lehet Marshal Politica, which is a sort of green liberal party. So, very, very different views across the opposition spectrum. So it's very difficult for them to get together. But 
they've seen from all the from, from from most of the research at least that's been done that if they do combine together and put forward these single opposition candidates in a lot of constituencies they will almost certainly stop Fidesz getting a two-thirds majority and they could even stop Fidesz getting an overall majority, getting more than 50%. That is unlikely, but polls suggest that it is a possibility if they manage to get some kind of comprehensive deal together in the in the next two or three days. And Dan, what kind of campaign has Orban run? Has, has he continued to strongly play the anti-immigration card? Absolutely. The, the, uh, as, as the campaign has gone on, um, the Fidesz rhetoric has narrowed down essentially to that one issue um, or a uh, a couple of aspects of that issue, at least. Um, Orban is making this not just a, an election based on which political party you prefer, but he says this is an election in which uh, Hungarians have to choose whether to save Hungary or not. He says Fidesz is the only party that will save Hungary by stopping immigration, keeping the border fences up, They're the, the fences that Orban built on Hungary's southern border during the migration crisis in 2015, and by fighting what he says is a, a conspiracy, an international conspiracy involving the European Union, involving the United Nations, he now says, and all of it masterminded by George Soros, the um, Hungarian-born American billionaire philanthropist, funder of major liberal causes. Um, and Orban says that Soros is, is essentially public enemy number one. And he says that Soros is spending huge amounts of money coordinating with the EU and the UN and people inside Hungary to get rid of his, to, to get rid of the Orban government and, as he puts it, flood Hungary and flood Europe with migrants. I think it's worth, um, I might read a, a quote that you, you quote Orban today and in, in the, the Irish Times today and irishtimes.com from an interview that Orban gave to National Radio on Friday and it kind of summarises, I suppose, some of these views but I think the quote is so strong it's, it's probably worth, worth reading and this is a direct quote from Orban. He said, In Hungary there are, there are around 2,000 paid people working during the election campaign to topple the government and install a new pro-immigration cabinet acceptable to George Soros. We know precisely who these people are. We know names. We know by and large who, how and why they are working to transform Hungary into an immigrant state. Um, it's extraordinary language, isn't it? I mean, are, are his supporters really willing to buy into this kind of rhetoric? Um, well, a lot of them are. Um, polls suggest that, hung, uh, that, that Fidesz has a, a hard core of Fidesz supporters, something like two million voters. Um, and they will always vote for Orban. They will stick by Orban, whatever he says, effectively. Their, um, the, 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 the government line is now pushed relentlessly through the vast majority of major media here. Uh, one of the things that Orban did immediately on taking power after, uh, in 2010 was establish very strict government control over the public broadcaster. Um, it's essentially now a, a government propaganda outlet. Um, and that's across major TV channels and radio. His allies in business have taken over all the, re the major regional newspapers. So they used to offer us a diversity of opinion and views and, and criticism of the government around the country. And, and regional press is still very popular here. A lot of the, the regional papers sell more copies than the big national papers. Um, so the, the messaging is extremely strong from Fides. And a lot of people do buy into this. They, they are convinced by this and they simply uh, have come to fear uh, change. They've come to fear change. They've come to fear, above all, immigration and George Soros. Um, it's very good that you mentioned that, that quote, Chris, because um, 
this is one of the key developments that we could see after the election. Um, Fidesz has introduced legislation recently um, tightening government control over NGOs and also tightening government control over Central European University. That's the big liberal Soros founded and funded university in Budapest. Now, after the election, there are fears that Central European University, if Fidesz continues in power, and especially if it has a two thirds majority, Central European Uni University could be forced to leave Budapest. And this was founded after 91 when um, uh, Hungarian politicians, including Orban, were pushing for uh, liberal reforms and democracy in the in the post-communist and, and post-Soviet period in Hungary. That, that university could be forced to leave after the election. Uh, NGOs fear a, a very tough crackdown from Orban after the election. Uh, media groups that are still not in pro-government hands fear a crackdown. Um, and this is based on the kind of quotes that you heard there, saying that Orban saying that there are 2,000 people essentially working for Soros and Soros and trying to bring down the government in Hungary and that he knows the names and he knows where they work. But during a big speech on March the 15th, which is a major national holiday here, he specifically said that the government will take vengeance against its, its enemies after the elections. Um, so the threat has been made very clear. Um, and it just remains to be seen whether he goes through with that, whether he really does push on with tightening the screws on, on media, on NGOs, um, or whether he feels after the election, if he does win, um, and if he wins comfortably, then he can relax things, he can step back a bit and not go through uh, and not realize some of the more extreme threats that he and his allies have been making during the campaign. You mentioned the press there a couple of times, Dan. What is the state of the press there? I mean, is, is there a free and independent press that are willing to ask hard questions about Orban? Um, it does still exist. You can still find criticism relatively easily, um, at least in the big cities. What is well, the areas in which it's tougher to find a plurality of views are out in the regions and particularly among older generations, particularly in the provinces, particularly people perhaps with uh, slightly lower education, um, slightly less education, they tend to take their news. All the statistics show that their main source of news is the, is the state broadcaster. That's the TV and the radio. Um, and also these regional outlets that have been taken over by pro-Orban businessmen in recent years. Um, so the, the, the major voice that they're getting through the major channels of, of media communication are overwhelmingly pro-government. Uh, there are still uh, investigative news websites. Some of them have been founded by uh, very good journalists who were forced out of other publications that were taken over by, by Orban loyalists. They are doing very interesting work. They're digging into the scandals around uh, how European Union funding is used. They're, they're digging very deeply rather into the affairs of this coterie of businessmen that surrounds Orban and even into some of Orban's relatives who, had, who have done extremely well under the Orban government. So those views out, are out there still, but that the media is certainly one of the areas which people would be looking uh, looking to to be under increasing pressure if Orban gets in for a third consecutive term. And just uh, on the campaign, then again, down itself, I mean, what other issues have featured? I presume the economy has, has been a feature as it is in every election. Yes, it has been a feature. And Orban has uh, presided over a period of pretty steady growth um, and um, unemployment has come down. Now, People who dig into those figures a little bit say, well, they've come down largely, the unemployment figures at least have come down largely because um, 
Orban introduced a program of public works, which essentially force people who are on benefits into extremely low paid um, public work projects, you know, cleaning up litter, sweeping the streets, working in fields, um, extremely low paid work, but it takes those people off the uh, unemployment lists. And if they don't take those in extremely poorly paid jobs, then they lose their benefits completely. So the government says this is a way to get them into work, get them into the habit of going to work and to sort of get them on a track that takes them into longer term, more gainful employment. Critics say it's essentially a very cheap labor scheme, which massages the unemployment figures. And Dan, there is, a, uh, of course, a, a wider dimension to this election, a European dimension, if you like. And um, um, it's a result on Sunday that will be watched closely in Brussels and, and other European capitals. As you mentioned today in your, in your latest article, the, the EU is taking legal action against Hungary over some of the issues you've already touched upon there, the clampdown on NGOs, the threat to the Central European University, Hungary's refusal to take its quota of refugees. So um, you've been monitoring down the rise, not just of Orban, but of other populist leaders in, in Eastern Europe in particular. How much of a threat do you think they pose to the um, sort of more liberal vision of democracy espoused by leaders in the West? Well, on all these issues, as you say, the European Union is taking measures, but um, what Orban has really done in recent years has shown how ineffective the European Union is in dealing with rule of law issues. For a number of years now, on all the, in all the different areas that we've discussed, Orban has been accused of undermining rule of law, undermining democracy, removing the checks and balances in, in the Hungarian system. But the processes which the, the European Union has undertaken are extremely slow moving and the tools they're using appear to be extremely blunt. Taking a lead from Orban, most people think, we now see the Polish government going in a similar direction, we see the Romanian government going in a similar direction, we saw um, the uh, Slovak government until Prime Minister Robert Fico was removed recently, also taking similar measures. So certainly um, if Orban was to win two thirds, and have a super majority again, and essentially a free hand to continue uh, down this path, a lot of the, the, the like-minded leaders in the region would see this essentially as an endorsement of his way of ruling, and, and they would potentially be emboldened in, in continuing down the same path. And now to those violent scenes at the Gaza-Israeli border last Friday, when Israeli forces opened fire on protesters, demanding the right of Palestinians to return to their ancestral homes in Israel. Most reports put the death toll at 16, and hundreds were injured. Mark Weiss joins me now from Jerusalem. Mark, some of the facts are in dispute, but what do we know for sure happened on the Gaza border last Friday? Well, this was day one of um, what is planned by Hamas rulers in Gaza to be uh, six weeks of protest culminating um, in the middle of May uh, when Israel celebrates its 70th uh, independence anniversary, uh, which is marked by Hamas as the, the day of Nakba or catastrophe. Uh, for them, it marks the beginning of the Palestinian refugee problem when thousands, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians fled what was Israel uh, to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip or further abroad to uh, surrounding Arab countries such as Lebanon and Jordan. Um, they claim it was to be a march of return, um, a peaceful protest, uh, as far as the organizers said, uh, that would mass at six different locations along the Gaza border with Israel. Um, it didn't take long, however, for disturbances to break out. There was stone throwing, Molotov cocktails were thrown. 
and the Israeli forces on the Israeli side of the border um, were massed in their biggest concentrations uh, for many, many years, including 100 sharpshooters. Um, by the end of the day, there were 16 Palestinians killed um, and many injured. Um, Israel claims um, that all of the Palestinian fatalities were males um, aged between 19 and 35. They said the people that were targeted um, with live fire were engaged in violence. Uh, and Israel has warned that if uh, the, these um, mass demonstrations along the border continue, then the Israeli action will be stepped up and may include strikes deeper within the Gaza Strip aimed at militant targets. And what did the Palestinians say about those who were killed? Um, they've confirmed the identities. They were all um, young males, um, but the Palestinians continue to insist that this is, uh, by and large, a peaceful protest, whereas Israel believes um, it's uh, manufactured by militant groups as a cover for either um, the worst case scenario would be infiltration by armed gunmen into Israel or attempts to damage um, the border fence, uh, which Israel relies on um, to keep security on the Israeli side of the border. Um, but just on those 16, I know, I mean, I think Hamas accepts that some of those killed at least were Hamas operatives, but certainly the Palestinians say that that many of those killed were just people taking part in a peaceful protest. Isn't that that is what they're saying? Isn't that right? Yes, Hamas has claimed that uh, five of the victims were um, members of militant groups. Israel claims that figures at least 10. Now, the European Union and the United Nations have both called for an independent inquiry. How has the Israeli government responded? Um, quite nonchalantly, actually. Um, the Israeli leaders say they don't believe it will result in um, any kind of um, international inquiry. And if it does get to that, Israel will not um, cooperate. And I'm just interested, Mark, in exploring a bit further what justification, I know you've, you've given an outline of it there, but the kind of justification the Israeli military offered for, for shooting dead 16 people. I mean, as you mentioned, there were rocks thrown. They say Molotov cocktails were thrown. And we know people, they say, were charging towards a, a fence, which is, I mean, it's not a fence that they're making, but the fence is there. But there was no indication of any immediate threat to life on the Israeli side. So how did they justify shooting so many people dead? The Israeli leaders and the military say that um, this wasn't actually a peaceful demonstration. It wasn't designed to be a peaceful demonstration. Remember that Hamas um, um, and the other militant groups in the Gaza Strip are constantly trying to infiltrate Israel. Um, even over the last couple of weeks, there's been four or five attempts. Um, they have not been successful, usually, um, and the main strategic weapon for infiltration has been uh, the digging um, of uh, tunnels from within Gaza, under the border, and uh, coming out uh, inside Israel. Israel, um, since the last Gaza war in 2014, has successfully uh, identified and destroyed a number of tunnels thereby eliminating uh, what Israel perceives as the most important strategic threat from Hamas. And Israel believes, uh, rightly or wrongly, that this um, six months of planned six weeks, sorry, of planned demonstrations is a cover um, to infiltrate Israel uh, via other means by using huge crowds along the border, 
um, to um, to infiltrate uh, by armed groups to infiltrate those crowds and that way to cross the border uh, where can they, they can carry out attacks inside Israel. So from the very beginning, before the protests on Friday even started, the army made clear um, it would not allow um, thousands of Palestinians to mass close to the border fence, to damage the border fence, and thereby allow potentially uh, armed Palestinians to infiltrate into Israel. But I suppose the question mark being asked is, I mean, even taking all of that at face value, is whether shooting that many people dead is, is a proportionate response um, to the scenes that, that were um, developing there on Friday. I think the Israeli response would be that um, if um, there hadn't been such a, a strong response, a forceful response from Israel, then we would have seen uh, indeed tens of thousands of people quite easily crossing into Israel, defying Israeli sovereignty, uh, and the protests would only grow uh, day by day or week by week, and the end result would be um, much more serious with many more casualties. What about the opposition parties and opposition activists in Israel? Have they accepted the uh, official explanations of this on this occasion, or are more questions being asked? There was quite widespread um, uh, support for uh, the official government policy on this, um, including from the mainstream left-wing opposition parties, the Zionist Union, which includes the Labour Party. However, the um, the smaller left-wing opposition party, Merits, did criticise uh, the high, relatively high number of casualties and also called for an independent Israeli inquiry uh, into the events on Friday. Um, that's not going to happen, certainly not at this juncture. The government will not... Um, uh, investigate um, what happened, uh, believing that uh, the army acted um, with with relative restraint to the actions that were happening on the border. Um, and the defence minister, Igor Lieberman, was very critical of this call by the Merits party, saying that they um, spend uh, more time defending Palestinian positions than um, Isra the Israeli soldiers were sent to the border to defend Israeli sovereignty. And, and tell us something, Mark, about the reaction on the Palestinian side. I mean, has the, the Palestinian Authority had anything to say about what happened? Well, the background, of course, to this latest um, uh, wave of protest is um, ongoing tension between uh, the Hamas group, which rules the Gaza Strip, and the mainstream Palestinian Authority, which controls the West Bank. And a lot of the um, very real problems that uh, do occur in Gaza are because the palace because of this ongoing uh, struggle between these two groups um, the Palestinian Authority based in Ramallah uh, has been cutting off the electricity supply uh, to um, the Gaza Gaza Strip and also cutting cutting salaries of uh, civil servants to the Gaza Strip that receive their salaries from the Palestinian Authority this has had a very uh, significant economic impact on the impoverished Ongbev and attempts to um, rec uh, reconciliation attempts uh, to get these two groups to stop their dispute that's been going on for many years now, uh, mediated by Egypt, uh, have so far failed to um, bear any fruit. And we must remember, of course, that it's not only Israel that is responsible for the um, closing of the borders on the Gaza Strip, it's also Egypt which has a common border with Gaza. Now, Egypt um, has accused uh, the militant groups in Gaza uh, of supporting 
um, Islamic groups fighting Egyptian forces in the Sinai. The border between Gaza and Egypt runs along the Sinai. And they believe that uh, tunnels dug between Gaza and Egypt, the Egyptian Sinai, have been used to smuggle uh, weapons and militants into Egypt, into the Sinai, to fight against the Egyptian forces. And also, uh, those tunnels have been used as a safe haven by militants fighting the Egyptian forces to go back into Gaza after they carry out attacks. So uh, Egypt also has very serious issues with Gaza. And therefore, for most of the time, the Egyptian crossing point uh, with the Gaza Strip is also closed. And uh, Mark, you mentioned then at the outset how this was um, protest was um, planned as the beginning of a six-week um, long protest um, leading up to Independence Day um, in, in Israel. How much concern? Um, well, first of all, actually, ha- have things been quiet since the weekend? I mean, what's the situation being there today, for example, Monday, Tuesday, in fact? Um, relatively quiet. Yes, there have been very small gatherings along the border, but certainly nothing by the sco- on the scope of Friday's demonstrations. And I think the next test, big test will be this coming Friday. Friday, of course, is the uh, Muslim holy day, um, where uh, the mosques are usually full uh, and empty uh, around midday. And after that, usually traditionally protests start. So I think Friday will be the next big test. And Mark, is there any indication here that leaders on either side are attempting to calm tensions? Well, Israel says it will remain um, uh, uh, along the border uh, with stepped-up forces ready for any potential uh, trouble on Friday or in the weeks ahead. Um, And as far as I can see, the Gaza authorities are planning to continue their protests um, in a way for Hamas, despite the fatalities, the protest on Friday was a success because it certainly has put uh, the Gaza Strip uh, back uh, at the top of the headlines and also had the United Nations Security Council again discussing the problem of Gaza. So uh, from this point of view, it has been a success for them. Uh, And whether they will continue with the protests um, uh, on such a large scale in, in the coming weeks remains to be seen. Okay, Mark Feist in Jerusalem, thanks for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.